GoJet like I want. Um, you know, it's actually going to people to get across the world, which is amazing to me. Anyway, um, hey, so uh, tonight I'm going to be preaching out of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. And uh, while you're turning there or opening your apps, uh, I just wanted to... I was wondering, has anybody been keeping up with the number of COVID, COVID cases on campus? That's really hard to say. Well, in the last two weeks, they, they have increased by six times. Yeah, we went from like 10 to 60 in just two weeks. So the only reason I'm throwing that out there is because it's a privilege that we get to meet together. Like, I get to talk to a lot of different other campus pastors like, some of our friends that were starting a Chi Alpha at Prairie View A&M haven't even been on campus yet, right? They didn't even get to meet, they don't even get to meet together. Like, my, my buddy that does uh, Chicago Chi Alpha, he hasn't gotten to meet with his students face-to-face, not even once. So we really do have a privilege, so I want to encourage y'all, I know it's lame, I know it's like a drag, but just wear your mask. Just wear your mask on campus, you know, wear your mask here. It's, it's really like a tiny little itty-bitty sacrifice when we think about it, right? And all the, all the studies that I have read say that if two people are wearing a mask, it cuts down transmission rates by 75%. And that's without social distancing or anything else. That's just straight up wearing a mask. Which, I mean, like a couple minutes of inconvenience and saying, what, say it again? It's kind of a small price to pay, Right? So I just want to caution y'all, right? Like, hey, guys, like, let's just continue to be wise. Amen? All right. So now that that lame stuff's out of the way, um, here we are, Luke chapter 16. So this is one of my favorite parables, okay? I think it might be my number one favorite parable because when you read it, you get to the end and you go, huh? And I just love stuff like that. But anyway, so here we are. Uh, Jesus told his disciples... There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What does this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their house. So... He called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he said to the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the, people, <clears throat> for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So, if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, I pray that you would speak to us tonight. 
God, I pray that you would soften our hearts, prepare our minds, Lord, to hear and receive what you want to say. Holy Spirit, we welcome you in. Come and be the king of our hearts. Come be the God of our lives. Lord, you are wanted here, and we give you the authority to act like the God that you are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, how many of you have heard this term that all the hip kids are talking about lately? Uh, the 1%. Have you heard of this thing? Yeah? It's like the rich people, right? I don't know. I'm like never on the internet. But the 1%, right? Uh, so when I was growing up, like the, the richest man out there was Bill Gates. Bill Gates was like Mr. Rich Guy, right? He, I, I don't know if you know this guy, right? But he, he like invented Windows, right? Like kind of a big deal, made like the home PC like usable by common people, right? Uh, Steve Jobs stole a lot of his ideas from Bill Gates, BT dubs. But uh, Bill Gates is one of the wealthiest men on the planet. He was the wealthiest man on the planet when I was young, right? And he still, even though he's no longer in charge of Microsoft or anything, just from his investments, you know, like once you hit that, you know you're rich when your money starts making money, right? Like he's, he's that guy. So he is so rich, his money is making billions of dollars, right? He makes $4 billion a year. He literally cannot give away his money fast enough. He, him and his wife have said, like, hey, we've given our kids just a little bit and a trust. I think his kids are getting only $100 million each, right? And they're going to give away everything else, right? $4 billion a year. That breaks down to this just under $11 million a day is what he makes, which is about $450,000 per hour. The dude makes $7,000 a minute or $127 a second. So to process that, Bill Gates is walking down the street. There's a $100 bill. It is not worth my time to bend over and pick it up. That's stupid rich, right? That's almost unfair, right? But Bill Gates is not the number one dude in the world. The number one dude in the world is this guy, Jeff Bezos right? Yeah, he looks like a Bond villain. Like, he looks like a Bond villain. That dude has a lab or a lair in a volcano somewhere, I swear, and he's going to attack us with giant robots. It's coming, right? Jeff Bezos is worth $183 billion. In case you're wondering, that's two royal families of England, right? That's stupid wealthy, right? His, in the last year, in the last 12, not like, like in the last 12 months, his income has increased by $70 billion in 12 months, right? He's worth that much money after he got divorced and had to give half of his stuff away. Stupid rich, right? That's why this guy plays with rockets, Right? Like, hey, Jeff, what are you doing for the weekend? Uh, I'm going to try and hit the moon with a rocket. <laughs> oh, I was thinking of going fly fishing, you know? <laughs> the dude is so rich. So if you break it down, he makes about $2,219 per second. That's stupid. That's stupid, right? So Jeff Bezos is walking down the street, sees a check for $1,000, literally not worth his time to pick that up. Most of you guys make $1,000 in a month, right? If you're lucky, 
Jeff Bezos is so rich that an average American spending $1 is about the same to him as spending $1.9 million. You know what I'm saying? We're like, yeah, I'll spend a dollar on a bottle of water. He's like, I'll spend $1.9 million on a, I don't know, painting, unicorn, I don't know. Just like, sure, I feel like buying a satellite. <laughs> Call the Pentagon. I want to buy the moon. To put this in perspective, right? We look at those guys and we're like, dude, they are unfathomably rich. The guy almost can't spend his money fast enough. That's dumb, right? D-U-M, dumb, okay? But would it shock you to realize that some people look at you the same way we look at them? The average global income, the average annual global income, for just your, your average person from planet Earth, $2,100 a month. In the United States, the average is 62000 a year. So the average, I said it wrong, sorry. The average person makes $2,100 in a year. The average American makes $62,000 in a year. Does that make sense? So for every dollar that the average American earns, the global worker earns three cents. Americans, if you are at or above the average income, if you come from a family that made technically $55,000 a year or more, you are in the 1% in income globally. If you have food in your refrigerator after your meal, if you have clothes not only on your back but also in a drawer, if you have a roof over your head and a place to sleep at night, you are richer than 75% of the global population. If you have a computer or if you attend a university, you are in the top 1% of the globe. More than one-third of the people on planet Earth live on less than $2 a day. And I want to point this out. That is not like adjusted Right? That's not like, oh, two U.S. dollars a day. No, that is purchasing power. So the same purchasing power of $2 in the U.S. is the same purchase pow purchasing power that they make a day. 1.2 billion people on the planet live on less than $1.25 a day. Here's something that blew my mind. Americans spend roughly $465 billion every year on Christmas. $465 billion, B, every year on Christmas, which is more than all but 29 countries' gross domestic product. We spend more on Christmas a year than Denmark as a nation produces in a year. We spend more on Christmas in a year than the United Arab Emirates generates as a country. We spend more on Christmas than Norway generates as a nation. 
It's in multiples of 10 greater than a country like Guatemala. We spend 10 Guatemalas on Santa. That's a lot of bananas. Isn't that crazy? It is bananas. Well played. Who said that? High five yourself. That's what I'm talking about. You get a gold star in heaven. Bet you didn't know I could do that. <laughs> Everyone made a really weird sound after I said that, like, what? It was a joke. Anyway, um, so here we have this parable where Jesus is talking about some dude spending money, right? And it's really weird because Jesus is throwing out this, this example of a character that's not great, Right? You know what I'm saying? Like, the dude's a cheat. What? And Jesus is like, be like him. What? Right? And so, to give us a little bit of context, right? Here is, we're in Luke chapter 16, right? And remember the handy-dandy Luke spiciness graph, okay? Here we are. So, we're in chapter 16. That means he's really close to Jerusalem. He's within 20 miles of Jerusalem. So, he is 80% spicy right now. Right? That's about where he's at. Is this graph helpful? I think it's very helpful, right? I made it myself, guys. I really did graph it out one to one. That's why it curves like that. It's not true at all. I drew a line. Anyway, um, so Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's not quite there because he's not at peak spice, right? And this is like one of the more shocking and confusing parables for us. And it was just as shocking and confusing to the contemporary audience, but for completely different reasons. Right? This parable is really confusing to us because of, like, why this dude makes the deals, right? The shrewd manager, unrighteous steward, whatever you want to call it, right? Like, we're like, he's making the deals for selfish reasons. That's weird, right? That's not right. Why would a dishonest man be held up in in high esteem? But to the contemporary audience, they're shocked about who he made the deals with. You see the difference? See, he was making deals with debtors, people he had power and status over, unworthy people. Isn't that interesting? And so in that culture, in that time, you didn't do that kind of thing. You kept the lower class down where they belong, beneath you. And then on top of that, there's just this really, they they actually had a really similar view to wealth as we do, culturally speaking. And I can say that because if we just flip over a chapter two in Luke 18, so Jesus is like peak spice here. Jesus is interacting with the rich young ruler, and right at the end, you you all know the whole story, and if if you're new here and don't know Jesus, don't know the Bible stories, ask the person next to you later, right? I don't want to take up too much time with this, but Jesus has this interaction with the rich young ruler, and, and the rich young guy walks away. And Jesus says, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is possible with man, what is impossible with man is possible with God. 
right? Everybody's mind was blown. If a rich guy can't get into heaven, who can? That's literally what they're asking. See, because the contemporary thinking was wealthy people were obviously blessed by God. I mean, think about it. Think about the patriarchs, right? Abraham, stinking loaded, right? As wealthy as some kings, right? Isaac, filthy rich. Jacob, the dude was a hustler. You know he was, right? And then Joseph, like the number two man in all of Egypt, the most powerful nation on the earth, right? They were all blessed by, they were all chosen by God. They were all blessed by God. Therefore, rich means you're blessed. Right? It's a no-brainer. But if the rich don't get compulsory heaven, then how does anyone have any hope? Because that was the one external. How do I know that God loves me? He's blessing me. You see that? But Jesus turns this paradigm completely on its head to such a degree that the disciples almost lose their concept of salvation. And here's the crazy thing, is that today there are still some flavors of Christianity that have adopted this idea. That God really loves you. How do you know God loves you? Is that you're financially blessed. You succeed. I don't want to point any fingers. You know who I'm talking about. And, you know, the Lord will judge them, so we'll just leave it at that. But I want to, like, look really briefly at the character of the shrewd manager here, okay? So we have that context. We understand the background, how everyone thinks about this, right? We're all on the same track, right? They're like, man, like, if uh, wealthy people are obviously blessed by God and loved by God better than anybody else, right? And wealth is a sign of blessing, okay? Wealth is a sign of blessing, Okay, and then you don't you don't give that to lower class people because they're lower than you, and also you're diminishing the sign of blessing. But then we we come to the unrighteous steward. He spent money on people in lower rank. Right, these people had a debt to him and to his master. But he leveraged his advantage. Not to get something out of them, but to win their heart. Did you see that? He's like, I know what I'll do. I'll do something so that I'll be welcome in their homes. He's trying to win their friendship. And then in the end, he's commended for that action. Another thing that I noticed about the steward, right? The shrewd manager. Is he didn't look at what he lost. He looked at what he had to work with. You, you pick up on that? He didn't sit and bemoan the job that was disappearing. He surmised that he, he surveyed what he had and then acted. Does that make sense? What do I have to work with? Sometimes we, we have this thinking, you know, as... The church, church people are weird about money. Can we just say that? Church people are weird about money. And sometimes we have this idea that like, uh, I'll give when I, when I get more. See, in, you haven't learned from this parable. Because you're thinking about what you don't have. Instead of thinking about what you do have. 
And here's the craziest thing, I think, about this, is that Jesus commends this guy because of his selfishness. Yeah, he, like, commends him for being selfish. Because he wasn't of two minds. He was using the money to serve himself. Does that make sense? He was using the money to serve himself. He wasn't a slave, like Jesus said at the end, to two masters. It was him or money. He chose himself. So he used that wealth as a means to win friendship, to benefit himself. He wasn't a slave to money. And so the biggest implication that we can walk away from from this parable with is, is that wealth, money, is a means to an end. Wealth is a means to an end. See, often we treat wealth as the end itself, the goal, right? Get rich or die trying. You know what I'm saying? We'll use people... You know, we'll abuse generosity. How many have, of y'all have worked for managers, like worked for jobs where they just chew you up and spit you out to get productivity out of, out of you so that their bottom line can be a couple dollars better? You know what I'm saying? So we abuse and use people. We exploit you, loopholes. We, we take advantage of generosity so that I can get mine. And then sometimes, sometimes we'll cheat our fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord and just say, ah, it was just business. Jesus would describe a person that acts like that as a slave to money. You cannot serve two masters. You can serve God or you can serve money. So for most of us, that's not a big deal because we're not like, you know, wheeling and dealing on Wall Street or whatever. Most of us in here don't run our own companies. You know, we're usually the ones getting ground into paste so that somebody else can get a nickel raise. You know what I'm talking about? Everybody that works at HEB knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> if I have to get yelled at one, by one more Karen because of a mask... Crazy thing is, all the HEB workers know where, like, the knives are, right? And anyway. (laughs) But here's where it strikes home for us as college students, as members of the 1%. When we orient our lives around the amount of income we can potentially earn in the future by our degree, by our career, what would Jesus say we're enslaved to? Some of you are thinking about right now the next thing. Some of you are wrapping up your academic career, and that's good. There's nothing wrong with it. But the God that you're praying to is the God of salary. Lord Jesus, where am I going to get the most money? I want to propose a new idea to you. When we move from college, why shouldn't we consider where God wants us to be and then look for a job there? As opposed to 
finding the best job we can and trying to luck out on a local church. If we really serve God and not money, shouldn't that be how we decide things? Coincidentally, just an offhand, not connected comment at all, why do you think so many college students struggle to walk with God or find a home church after college? Could those things be related? I don't know, I'm just some idiot, you know? Wealth and money is a means, not an end. Jesus meant for it to be a tool in your hand, not a master with a whip standing above you. And then Jesus, he right at the end, he brings up... He, just brings in this new concept for us. Jesus talks about unrighteous wealth versus true riches. What? What in Jesus' framework is true riches? I think he hints at it when he says that the manager is going to be welcomed into people's homes, right? Right? Jesus says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into where? Eternal dwellings. So what are true riches? It's people's eternity. And look, I know it's scary to trust God with money. I know it's scary to trust God with money. I'm a missionary. You guys may not know this, but the way that I get my income is that people just give out of the kindness of their hearts. There's over 100 people that give me an average of $60 a piece. And that's how I get my income. And if somebody forgets, I just don't get that money. I, so I can tell you it's terrifying. But me and my family, me and my beautiful wife back there, we're dead set on serving God and not money. Do you know that, yeah. So our instinct is to hang on to our wealth so that we don't look like we're cursed by God. Right? And we'll quote all sorts of out-of-context Bible verses to justify that new Benz that we bought. Because in capitalism, the only sin is poverty. Which God do you serve? Do you know that Jesus talks about money more often than he talks about heaven or hell? Because he wants us to be wary. He wants us to be aware of the danger of giving ourselves to the God of money. But here's the thing. It's not because money is bad. It's because money isn't worthy of you. We can give our, our lives to something as transient and temporary as money. 
It's something Jesus pulled, literally pulled out of the mouth of a fish. If we are Christians, then we are called to be slaves to Jesus, not slaves to our bank accounts. We are to use the money we have to exchange for true riches, getting people reunited with Jesus. So what does that look like for us? Maybe you buy somebody Chick-fil-A on campus. When's the last time you bought somebody a meal? When's the last time you had somebody over to your house and cooked for them? You're like, man, I can't afford it. You can afford two packs of ramen. I mean, shoot, just dig through the cushions of your couch and you got like five packs of ramen. (laughs) But there's something about the God of money, at least with us, that we just want to worship at that altar. And Jesus was right. It takes a miracle for a rich man to get into heaven because we consistently choose to be slaves to money. So, is it even possible for a rich man to be saved? So one of my problems as a preacher, right, is is I'm really, really good at pointing out things that are wrong. I'm really, really bad at giving you solutions, right? I'm sure you all picked up on this. You walk out of here some nights and you're just going, I don't know what to do next. I'm like, me neither, guys. Let's just cry. (laughs) But for the sake of giving you guys an idea of what it looks like to be a wealthy person and walk with God, I want to tell you the story of this man, William Whitting Borden. He was the heir to the Borden Milk Company fortune. You know the the milk with the weird cow thing? That's him. When he was 16, he was living in Chicago with his family. They were incredibly wealthy. He got saved while attending the church of D.L. Moody, who is a famous preacher that you may or may not have heard of. If you haven't heard of him, write down his name, D.L. Moody, and just read anything that you can get your hands on by him. When he graduated from high school in 1904, his parents sent him on a world tour. Just like, get on a boat, go tour the world. So he started heading east, or west, to go east. He started over in Asia and then traveled across. And it was on that tour that he began to have a bigger view for the world. He started to understand that not everyone lived like him. By the time that he had reached London, he sat in the church of a man named R.A. Torrey. If you don't know who R.A. Torrey is, write that down. R.A. Torrey, T-O-R-R-E-Y. It'll change your life. He rededicated his life at the end of that sermon. After that world tour, he attended Yale University. So during his first semester at Yale in 1905, William Borden started something that would transform campus life. 
Borden's small morning prayer group that he started gave birth to a movement that soon spread across campus. By the time that Will Borden was a senior, 1,000 of Yale's 1,300 students were attending the prayer meetings. Borden's outreach ministry was not confined to the Yale campus. With his own money as a college student, he funded a New Haven rescue mission and there did personal work himself. One of Borden's friends wrote that he might often be found in the lower parts of the city at night on the street in a cheap lodging house or some restaurant to which he had taken a poor hungry fellow to feed him, seeking to lead him to Christ. One well-traveled English visitor, when asked what had most impressed him about America, replied, the sight of that young millionaire kneeling with his arm around a bum in the Yale Hope Mission. He funded it with his own money. In 1906, he attended the Student Volunteer Movement Convention in Nashville, Tennessee. There he heard a preacher by the name of Samuel Zwemer. Reverend Zwemer opened a map and awakened Borden to the open doors of evangelizing the Muslim world. This became William Borden's great call in life. Excited, Bill Borden wrote home about his desire to be a missionary. One of his friends responded with disbelief, saying, Bill was throwing himself away as a missionary. In response, he wrote two words in the back of his Bible, no reserves. No reserves. He fixed his eyes on that goal. He never wavered. He also challenged his fellow classmates to consider foreign missionary service. After he graduated from Yale in 1909, Borden attended Princeton Theological Seminary. And before he graduated in 1912, he funded the National Bible Institute, the Moody Bible Institute, and the China Inland Mission. The China Inland Mission ended up being the, in, the agency to send him as a missionary to the Uyghur people, a Muslim people of northwest China. And if you follow the news, you should know who the Uyghur are. They're currently being rounded up, placed in concentration camps, executed, tortured, sterilized. When he told his family about missions, at first they were excited for him because they thought it was just a, a phase and his father initially told him, you'll always have a place here at the company. But when they saw that it was not a phase, his father told him he would never work for the family company and disinherited him. After that, Borden wrote in his Bible, no retreat. When he finished his studies at Princeton, he sailed for China. Because he was hoping to work with Muslims, he wanted to stop in Egypt first to study Arabic. While he was in Egypt studying Arabic, he contracted spinal meningitis. Within a month, 25-year-old William Borden was dead. His mother arrived shortly after from America because they had already planned on a vacation together in Lebanon. Then she discovered in his Bible, these words written shortly before his death in Egypt, no regrets. 
No reserves, no retreats, no regrets. Upon his death, William Borden bequeathed $800,000 to the China Inland Mission and several other Christian ministries. In today's terms, that's over $2.1 billion. What does it look like to exchange our unrighteous riches for true riches? It looks like the life of William Borden. No reserves, no retreats, no regrets. Let me ask you, when William Borden reached eternity and he walked through those gates, after he embraced that Savior that he loved, how many eternal homes do you think he was welcomed in? Thousands? And as that gift that he gave of money rolled on, the $2.1 billion that he gave to the kingdom of God, as that rolled on through the ages, does that number become millions? No reserves, no retreats, no regrets. Let's have the band come back up.